Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to episode number 50 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to episode number 50 of my sexy music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Spotify, or on Google Play Music, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show's all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams. And I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show into two parts. The first part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks. Then do my own personal analysis on the origin of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And then the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it. Uh, who are the session musicians on the track, the band members as well, what studio the song was recorded at, and the label it was released on, and the month and year it was released on, and the peak position it made up on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, and where it was recorded, as well as as well as where, where the label it was released on was based at as well. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to let you guys know that uh, the next episode of this podcast is going to be an interview episode since this is episode number 50, so I'm doing something a little bit special for the 51st episode of this podcast. So um, I'm going to be interviewing the lead singer of a group called The Happenings. And uh, the lead singer of the group, his name is Bob Miranda. And basically, if you're unfamiliar with The Happenings, what they're most well known for at that time in the 60s is that they took older songs from the late 50s and early 60s and completely rearranged them and made them their own and also turned them into hits again and all and you know uh made them sound made them sound contemporary to what was currently popular on the charts at the time in like 1966 and 1967 um they also recorded a couple songs that were from the great american songbook in the late 30s early 40s or at least in the 30s and 40s so um so yeah um in that interview i'm going to be talking with him about his career and what uh the things that he has accomplished over the years and what he's currently up to right now as well and also digging some stories behind some of the songs that he recorded and how we came across them and also talk about like who produced his songs and some of the behind the scenes details on his recording sessions of his songs as well so that interview will be next week. Um, you can find the happenings music on most streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. So that's where you'll be able to find their music. So I would urge you to listen to their stuff uh, before I interview them. And I will definitely, uh, you know, include links to their music in the description of uh, next week's interview episode. And yeah, so I'm very excited for that. It's going to be. Around the one-year anniversary of me starting this podcast, which was on April 23rd of last year. So, um, I'm very excited for that. So, yeah. But, yeah, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? Okay, so, 
Continuing on with my theme of vocal groups from the 60s, I'm going to do one more vocal group song before I do my interview with Bob Miranda from The Happenings next week. So just like that last week, this one's really, really good. Okay, so to switch things up, I'm going to do a more slower down-tempo ballad, but it's really, really juicy, and it's also one of those songs that is so lyrically mature that you can tell that the lyrics are written by a grown man and not a teenager. But really... The song is also one of those songs that's just perfect for any kind of slow dance where you're just dancing with a girl and holding her tight and enjoying the moment of being with her side by side as the song is playing. This song was released in December 1966. It's by a group called The Casinos. It's other than Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye. Oh man, is that song just steamy or what? I mean, it really is one of the hottest love songs from the 60s that is just so perfect and just so lush that it's really just a great song. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about what makes a song so good musically and lyrically as well. But first, let's talk about the song's music first. Okay, so now for a mix of a music history and a theory lesson as well. Okay, so... In the late 50s and early 60s, before the British invasion, there was this genre of music that was extremely popular amongst young people known as doo-wop. And doo-wop was a genre of music that put an extra emphasis on vocal harmonies, uh, specifically all guys, and less on instrumentation. But really, the whole doo-wop genre was built upon this chord progression that originated in the late 30s and early 40s, known as the 1645 progression otherwise known as ice cream chord changes. Like the blues, every doo-wop song from this era had its progression, and it became known as the doo-wop progression. Another variation of this progression was the 1-6-2-5 progression, and uh, that, that, that was just as common as the 1-6-4-5 progression. But as early 60s turned into the mid-60s, the vocal groups such as the Four Seasons and Lil' Anthony Imperials were getting further and further away from that progression and started doing different things. And one really cool thing about this song is that whoever arranged this song for this specific version of it made a slight change with the original chord progression and made what was a super cliche and overused chord progression into something completely different. Well, for starters, the song starts out with this gorgeous intro where the band plays this really cool and beautiful diminished chord progression. And another really interesting thing about this song is that if you listen closely, the pickup chord that starts the whole song off isn't the one chord, but a completely different chord, which is very interesting. And I'm pretty sure that chord is the major three chord. Uh, Only groups like the Beatles did really creative harmonic things like that back in those days. 
And when the vocals come in, at first you probably think he's going to play typical doo-wop chord progression like we talked about earlier. But when he gets past the two minor chord, the band plays this diminished chord that adds character to the song that makes it sound different than a typical 1-6-4-5 chord progression uh, song. And by the way, that is exactly what the song was before they redid it. It was just a typical doo-wop song with a 1-6-4-5 progression. He was basically substituting the 5 chord with a diminished chord. And in this song, it really creates depth in it to it. And it makes the song sound completely unlike a regular doo-wop song from the late 50s and early 60s. Also, when the song gets to its hook the first time around... I love that three major chord it goes to before it gets back into the one, which is exactly how the song starts, by the way. Also, as far as instrumentation is concerned, the song does have horns, but they're definitely not as in-your-face or as prominently featured as they are with other pop songs from this era. I mean, the horns come in, and you can hear them clearly, especially in the bridge and in the verses, too, but... Um, really, the horns aren't really as front and center as they are in other songs uh, from this era that featured horns. And in this song, they almost serve as as the as the role of strings in other songs. As a good paintbrush to create a beautiful arrangement for the song, it isn't just so romantic. But really, the star of the show for this song, as far as instrumentation is concerned, is the organ. Now, the organ is really the most prominently featured instrument in the song. And for measure one, the instrument is front and center and it pops right out. And it's also the instrument that carries the whole song as far as harmony is concerned. And I'm pretty sure he's playing a B th- Hammond B3 because that's exactly what it sounds like to me. But in this song, it really th- really shines when the organ player does this fabulous solo after the first two verses and choruses are done. And also, this song has a great middle eight, otherwise it was a bridge, where they do the somewhat typical bridge where it's a 4-1 and then it goes to the major 2-5. But the way it gets back into the main section of the song with that major 3 chord getting us back into the third and final verse and chorus it's, is what's really good about this song. Also, this song has one of the most timeless hooks on the planet. That is so charming and lovely that it really gets people to like this song a lot. And also, there is one part of the melody in the song where the singer sings this one note that almost contradicts the chord that he's singing under. But even that adds character to the song and makes the song really cool and unique as well. But yeah, let's talk about the song's lyrics because... As much as you would like the song, I honestly don't think it reflects where we are currently at right now in society as far as relationships is concerned. But it's important to have perspective and see where people's heads are back then, back in those days versus where we are currently at in today's world. You see, people's mentalities back then were not, oh, let's just hook up and have sex, not get married and settle down and raise a family. In fact, it was a polar opposite of that. You see, back then, the dictionary definition of American dream was to have a dream job with a wife or husband and a couple of kids and possibly a pet, such as a dog as well. The reason as to why you don't hear as many songs about hooking up and doing it back then 
was because for the most part, at least in the earlier part of the 60s, I'm not saying this applies to the later part of the decade at all, in which it probably doesn't. I personally feel like people's intentions were to get married and raise a family and buy a house and not just have casual sex without tying the knot. And I felt like at least during the early 60s, people were not really as interested in casual sex as they are right now. That's why you hear so many songs about love and monogamous relationships and getting married and having kids back then. I mean, it was really an innocent time, you know? I mean, it was back when, you know, censorship was going down, you know, and everything. So, you know, I mean, songs songs of that nature just couldn't get air, airplay on the radio back in those days, you know? So, I mean, there was definitely, uh, you know, more innocent uh, period of American history. But, however, this does not mean that people still abide by this to this day. I personally have known people around my age that have gotten married and will probably intend to have kids in the not-so-distant future. But I also know people who are single and are more career-driven and probably more interested in casual sex than they are full-time monogamous relationships. So, if you think this song doesn't apply to you, then that's okay. I'm not expecting you to be able to relate to this song. But I do love its concept of how he's instructing this girl to give her all of her love to him. And if things don't work out, she can easily end it and he won't be depressed about it. It takes a specific kind of person to have this mentality because not everybody can handle somebody else ending their relationship. But the guy in the song seems to be able to handle it well. Especially when he says things like, But if you must go, ooh, I won't tell you now. But yeah, let's talk about the history behind the specific song. So this is, again, on one episode, there are no separate parts. So in this part of the show, I'm going to try my best to keep it brief. But I'm in this part of the show, I'm going to do a history behind who wrote the song, as well as the group that made it a hit, and the versions that came out before it was a hit as well. Okay, so the song was written by a guy named John D. Loudermilk. Who was he? Well, he was a songwriter based in Nashville back when Music Row was not as big or as overpopular publishers and record companies as it is right now. But his writing style was interesting because he can go from writing lighty, fluffy pop songs like Ebony Eyes by the Everly Brothers and Sad Movies Always Make Me Cry by Sue Thompson to gritty, dirty, blues-oriented, almost folky songs like Indian Reservation and Tobacco Road. One thing that was notable about Johnny Loudermilk is that, like other songwriters at the time, his career as a solo artist in his own right tanked, and most of the singles he recorded under his own name flopped, and most of them were no more, not much more than regional hits, and most of them did not make the top 40 at all. I think he might have only had one top 40 hit as a solo artist, and that's it. One thing I'll say about John is that his songs were recorded multiple times before they were big hit, became big hits. And as he was born and raised in North Carolina before he made the move to Nashville, uh, Tobacco Road was written about the road in his hometown. His first cut as a songwriter was A Rose in the Bay Ruth by George Hamilton. And his next cut was as, as a songwriter was Sitting in Balcony by Eddie Cochran, both in 1956 and 1957. Uh, John died of pancreatic cancer at about three years ago. But we know, let's talk about the history behind this song and the versions of the song that came out 
before the casinos. Okay, so what really fascinates me about this particular song is mainly the timing of its release. You see, essentially a vocal group doo-wop song that was on the charts February, March of 1967. Now, I know what you're thinking, Sam. Why the heck is that so interesting? Well, in early 1967, doo-wop was as dead as a doornail as far as popular genres and music is concerned amongst young people. At, the, at this time, psychedelic rock was starting to take shape, and R&B music was starting to become increasingly complex and more progressive as time went on. And in early 1967, doo-wop was certainly a genre of music that was not on people's minds at all at the time. I mean, I feel like by this time, people have moved far and far away from doo-wop. So this song being on the charts was quite an anomaly and contradicting to what was really going on in popular music at that time in early 1967, which coincidentally made it sound unique to other songs out at that same time. But anyways, before the casinos got a hold of their version of the song, it was recorded as a straight country pop song by a guy named Don Cherry. And then subsequent versions of that song recorded after that more or less stayed true to the original recording of the song. Uh, this, these versions included Johnny Tilliston and Johnny Nash. Johnny Loudermilk also recorded the song himself, but all versions of the song, including his, contain the very typical 1-6-4-5 doo-wop progression. And the casinos were the first group to make some changes to the song and make it their own. But first, let's talk about them for a minute. Okay, so the Casinos were a nine-member band consisted of a vocal group and a band led by a guy named Glenn Hughes, along with his brothers Glenn and Norman. They were around since the late 50s and early 60s, but didn't get their first hit until early 1967. The group was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and they were discovered by a local Cincinnati DJ at the time named Tom Dooley. Tom saw them play at a, at a club in Cincinnati, and he had a song he wanted the band to record. And he also offered them to pay for studio time to record that song as well. The group was getting good reaction out of them doing Then You Can, then you can Tell Me Goodbye from the crowd, so they decided they wanted to record that song as well. Tom booked studio time at King Studios in Cincinnati, Ohio, and told the group they could record their song if they back him up for his song. Now, the band on the session, which were members of the casinos, by the way, consisted of Bob Armstrong on organ, Mickey Denson on guitar, Ray White on bass, and Bob Smith on drums. When Tom Dooley's song wasn't a hit outside of Cincinnati, the casino song, Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye, became a smash hit after it was released on the Fraternity Records, um, a local Cincinnati record label, and it peaked at number six in March 1967 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and it took them nine years to get the song. And it also peaked at number 28 on the UK Signals chart. Also, another noteworthy artist that also recorded in the same studios as the casinos cut Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye was none other than James Brown. The casinos would become a one-hit wonder as their follow-up singles failed to make the same amount of success as Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye. Gene Hughes, the lead singer and producer of the casinos, later went on to become a country music promoter after his time at the casinos ended until his death in 2004 from complications of a car accident. 
So that concludes episode number 50 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and as always, if you like my analysis on this week's song, and uh, you found it interesting, and you learned some really cool facts and information about the casinos, and you never really knew anything about them, and you never heard the song before, uh, please email me at samltwilliatiCloud.com, or if you're not into email, and if you're around my age, and you only use email for business and school, um, you can... Um, reach out to me on Instagram at iHeartOldies and you can DM me on there and uh, you can also check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net and by the way my Instagram username is spelled out like iHeartRadio except with oldies in the title so it's basically spelled out like iHeartOldies okay so yeah so um, I want to thank you guys for tuning in listening to this podcast episode and also want to say that um, next week's episode like I told you before is going to be an interview episode with Bob Miranda lead singer of the happenings i'll include their links to their music in the description of this uh of next next week's episode of this podcast so that way you guys uh get a good idea for what uh songs i'm going to be talking about with them so either way so um get excited for that uh next week's episode because it's going to fall on the one year anniversary of me starting this podcast one year ago next week so it's very exciting and yeah so um i'm sam williams and uh, thank you for joining me and um, by the way um i have a merch store for my podcast too you guys can check that out um it's uh and the link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast as well and i also have a spotify playlist for the show you, you can check that out and link the link to that is also in the description of this episode of this podcast so that's very exciting and yeah um also link to this week's song is also in the description of this episode of this podcast so um please do check all that out and let me know what you think of it and yeah so um I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police! Keep things groovy.